Let's pray. God, we pray that you might speak to us through your word. Lord, we pray that you might teach us. It's familiar to many of us. Give us open ears and soft and teachable hearts. And please, Lord, by your spirit, speak through me words that are true and faithful and relevant to us in our lives today. Do a work of grace in our hearts that we might respond to Jesus rightly. The one who is the king of the Jews, the king of the world, the one who deserves our allegiance, our love, our trust. In his name we pray, Father. Amen. When you think of world leaders that you want in power, I wonder who or, or what sort of people come to mind. Who comes to mind? And maybe you want leaders who listen and maybe give the majority what they want or a leader who will give you what you want. Maybe you want a strong leader who someone will take on their enemies and win. And when you think of strong leaders, I wonder if what, which of these people you might choose or turn to. Or maybe you wouldn't choose any of them. Maybe you want someone different. Yes. Um, maybe you'd prefer one of these as a world leader. Someone who will fight those intellectual or social battles. Someone who will fight the verbal or military battles wherever they're needed. The question is, who can save us from financial ruin, from unchecked lawlessness, from foreign invasion? Maybe could one of those. Who can save us though, rather, more importantly, who can save us from eternal danger? Who is the saviour king that we really need? We're in this series through the last few chapters of Matthew's Gospel in the lead up to Easter. We often cover 10 to 20 verses at a time and I wonder if we can lose sight of the bigger picture, the wider story. So let's remember where we've come since the start of chapter 26. Jesus had predicted his death at least three times. A woman had anointed him with perfume, expensive perfume to prepare him for his burial and Judas then began arranging to betray Jesus. Christ ate his final meal with the disciples, explaining that shedding his blood would establish a new and everlasting covenant relationship with God. He'd said that his disciples would fail him that night, but his death would atone for sin, for, even for their failures. And after the meal, Jesus went to the garden to pray where he submitted to the Father's will, that will that he drink the cup of God's judgment that sinners deserve. Jesus was betrayed, arrested, interrogated before the high priests and others. He spoke the truth but was spat on and hit and condemned to death for blasphemy. Meanwhile, Peter stayed close enough to get into trouble and Judas went away and hanged himself. Now the Jewish Councillors formally condemned Jesus and taken him to the Roman governor Pilate, seeking the death penalty. And now if you come to chapter 27, verse 1, it's probably about 6 a.m. on Good Friday morning. And I would probably, I would struggle to be awake and ready for work that early in the morning, but workday started early for Roman officials. And then the narrative, the story continues in verse 11 where Jesus is now under trial before Pontius Pilate. Now in all the Gospels, like in Mark and Luke and John, Jesus is asked this question, are you the king of the Jews? I imagine Pilate being 
confused or unconvinced. No doubt Jesus didn't look like a kingly figure. As Isaiah 53 says, there was nothing physically impressive about his appearance. And this brings us to our first point today, the saviour king who won't defend himself. We're not told here in Matthew's gospel what the Jews are accusing Jesus of. No doubt the priests had claimed that Jesus was a king. That's what he said about himself. And that is made explicit in Luke 23, where it suggested that Jesus also opposed taxes and he stirred up unrest. Uh, John's gospel tells us that the priests later admitted that Jesus claimed to be the son of God and that's why they wanted him dead. Jesus replies to the question, are you the king of the Jews? With, you say so. You say so. It's not a direct answer. But if he'd said yes, Pilate would surely have misunderstood the sort of king that Jesus was. Still, the Jewish leaders keep throwing questions and accusations at Jesus and he won't defend himself. He doesn't answer. Verse 12 and verse 14. Doesn't it remind you of the prophecy in Isaiah 53 and verse 7? He was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silenced before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Pilate was amazed that Jesus stayed silent and wouldn't defend himself. I, myself, I'm sometimes too quick to defend myself or justify my actions or say what I think is right in my marriage or in discussions. I want to defend myself. I want the truth to come out. I want justice to be done. Maybe you're like me and you can be too quick to open your mouth. But Jesus isn't and he's not running from death. He's choosing this path. He's choosing to suffer injustice, to save the unjust, and endure it in our place. Point two is the saviour king who people want. Pilate isn't convinced of Jesus' guilt. Pilate knew, verse 18, the Jews were envious. They were jealous of Jesus' popularity and the crowds following him and Seeing it was the festival of unleavened bread and the Passover pile offered to keep the tradition of letting a prisoner go who people choose. And if Pilate hoped that this would result in Jesus' freedom, well, it backfired, didn't it? Verse 16 tells us that a notorious prisoner, Barabbas, was in custody. Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 15, tells us he'd committed murder during a rebellion. So he was likely a Jewish zealot, a freedom fighter, a revolutionary hero. Now, some Greek manuscripts call him Jesus Barabbas. We'll read that in the footnote if you're looking at the Christian Standard Bible. But Jesus, or in Hebrew, Joshua for us, Yeshua. In Hebrew, it was a common Jewish name back then. Yeshua, Jesus, means the Lord saves. Barabbas means son of a father or son of the father. Barabbas's other first name was likely Jesus. So really what we have here is a choice between Jesus the Christ and Jesus Barabbas. It's a choice between two leaders. It's a choice between two saviors. Do they want some Galilean from up north who claimed to be the promised king? Or do they want one of their own people who will fight for their nation? 
Do the people want a, a tough freedom fighter or Jesus? Do they want a man of violence or a man of love? And this reveals their hearts. Do they want a leader who will free them from Roman oppression? Or do they want a suffering king who will free them from their own sin? People prefer Barabbas. And the question is, what will God do? Will the Lord save by this son of a father, Barabbas? Or will the Lord save by giving up his one and only son, Jesus? We know it's the latter. But the crowd want, who do the crowd want to save them? It's Barabbas, isn't it? And I suggest too that that's who people today would often choose as well. A tough person who will give them what they want now. Give them what they want now, not reconcile them to the true God. The chief priests and elders, they persuade an egg on the crowd to ask for Barabbas and Barabbas is who they want, verse 21. Now a week ago, as Neil mentioned at the start, a week ago, the crowd had praised the Lord Jesus as he entered the city on a donkey. It seems they've given up hope in him. And now Pilate asked, what should I do with Jesus? And the crowd say, crucify him. When asked, what is it he's done wrong? The crowd just yell louder, crucify him. Pilate didn't believe that Jesus deserved death. We're told here, aren't we, that Pilate's wife had had this scary dream and she wanted Pilate to have nothing to do with this righteous man, Jesus. Now, for Greeks and Romans, dreams mattered. Many thought that the dreams came from the gods. And we would say this dream was from God. And a warning to Pilate, but he refused to listen. And the crowd believed the propaganda of the priests and they just keep shouting and pressuring, crucify him, crucify him. And when Pilate wants to absolve himself of responsibility, they saved in 25, his blood will be on us and on our children. Their children are are not to blame for their sins. Sadly, this verse has been used to justify violence against Jewish people down through the centuries. And these thoughtless words from a mob are not God's instructions to us on how to treat Jews. Remember the Apostle Paul wished he could be cursed if it would save his Jewish people. We're to love Jews and seek their salvation. But as we think about Pilate's actions, some context is important here. A Pilate was was a weak, cruel, and violent leader. He'd previously been reported to the emperor by the Jews. And when this riot starts from an unruly mob in verse 24, he likely feared the emperor hearing complaints again that he cannot maintain order. Pilate is a crooked and dodgy judge who is swayed by public opinion. And I ask how many political leaders are like that. Don't speak the truth. Swayed by public opinion or or powerful lobbies and overdoing what's right. 
How often do we see that? Pilate capitulates to the crowd. He says he's innocent of the man's blood. He washes his hands to symbolize this, but he thinks he's not responsible for the death the crowd now seeks. That's what he says. But, But those things that he says and does can't remove his guilt. For In verse 26, he hands Jesus over to them to be flogged, to be crucified. The word flogged, it's one word that's passed over without details. But it was awful. That whip containing multiple strands with bits of metal and bone in it would tear your flesh open and had killed people. And the crucifixion that we'll consider on Friday, it will end Jesus' life. So really, Pilate's choice here is between Jesus' life. He's thinking, he's working out Jesus' life or my career. Which is it going to be? Career and political power is his God, and he'll sacrifice Jesus for that. Whereas what does Jesus sacrifice? Himself to save others. So different. True story. A little boy went to the doctor with his mother one day when it was time for his one-year-old sister to get her vaccination. He watched the nurse prepare the needle. His sister was oblivious, but he was not. He looked at his mother. Is that going to hurt, mummy? Will she cry? His mum replies, yes, it will hurt a little. She may cry. The boy said, can I get the shot for her, mummy? The boy's selfless offer is a a remarkable expression of love and sacrifice. But how much bigger, how much more importantly does this point to Jesus' great sacrifice, to his willingness to suffer, endure suffering for us, to his willingness to endure the wrath of God upon sin for us. Doesn't Jesus' example and Jesus' courage to go through this, doesn't it motivate us and give us hope? And yet the example of Pilate and the priests is a warning to us. They show that the strongest desires often contradict our deepest deepest and greatest needs. Our desires can ruin us. And take us to hell. Our desires can enslave, just as pol- politics and power enslaved Pilate and the priests. Desires for power and control can enslave us too. In the parenting course we've been running this term, We, the parents who are doing that, have been challenged to ask ourselves, do I want my children to obey me because of what I'm worshipping in my own heart? Like my desire to be obeyed. Or my desire for comfort and peace in the home. So how much of your parenting is driven by your own heart idols? Or at work? If you're a manager or you lead others, what's driving you in the way you relate to people? Is it about you making a name for yourself? 
getting respect for yourself? In your management or your leadership, are you wanting people to look up to you? Do you enjoy the power that you have over people? Is it about you? Are there sinful desires that you need to turn from before they ruin you or ruin the reputation of Jesus at your work or your school? Sinful desires we need to turn from. So Pilate and the people, they're not innocent. Sin prompts them to choose and to, to prompts them to choose to free Barabbas and not Jesus. And yes, they choose a violent murderer over the Son of God, the Saviour King. Now, third point, the Saviour King, Jesus, who seems weak. Jesus has been flogged, handed over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. But before they do that, they, the soldiers, they play with him first in this sick game for their amusement. Soldiers strip him and put a scarlet robe on him. And yes, he gets not a crown of thorns, not a crown of gold, but of thorns. Gets not a scepter, but a staff. And so look at this together. It's the robe and the crown and the staff and the kneeling and the hailing. King of the Jews, all of this designed to mock him and tease him and ridicule him and put him down. It's fake, it's painful, it's cruel. It's like a gang of violent, vindictive bullies at school, but way worse. And if the words and dress-ups weren't enough, they spit on him, they, they bash him with staff until their cruel fun is finished. He must have appeared so weak, so weak, And the soldiers and the crowd that saw him later, they must have thought, what a loser. But oh, how the appearance is different from the reality. Remember Philippians chapter 2. Though existing in the form of God, Christ did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, that is used for his own gain. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. And so Jesus appeared weak. He appeared defeated and pathetic, but it was far from it. Jesus is the king. He is still the king, the suffering servant, king of kings. He's a king in a a much bigger way than the soldiers can even comprehend. And can you imagine the strength and self-control that Jesus had to show here? When he's arrested in the garden, falsely accused and blasphemed by the Sanhedrin, when he's hit by the Jewish leaders, stay silent before Pilate when he's mocked, spat on by the Romans. Can you imagine the humility, the patience, the self-control it would have taken to not call on those 70,000 angels that were at his disposal? Can you imagine how easy it would have been for him to shut their mouths 
or extinguish their lives. The depth of temptation for Jesus there must have been phenomenal. The temptation to not speak back or the temptation to speak back, to hit back, to take revenge. I would have given in. I think you would have too when you have that power. You see, Jesus' strength is seen in his apparent weakness here. Jesus' humility shows his commitment to do the Father's will. Jesus enduring this pain and mocking and torture and injustice, it shows the love he has for us. And it's moving. Which brings us to point four, the Saviour King who saves. Think about all the suffering that Jesus experienced here, the punishment, the shame, the pain leading up to and then including the cross. And by enduring this, he is bearing the judgment that you deserved for your sins and that I deserved for mine. And he was willing to suffer and die to save sinners. As he said back in chapter 20, to serve and to give his life as a ransom. To free many. He was taking the place of guilty people who deserved it. We would even say that Barabbas was on death row. Jesus took his place, the innocent dying for the guilty. It's the same with the Jewish crowd who were there on Good Friday calling for Christ's crucifixion. Do you remember what Peter would say to the crowds after Jesus has risen, 50 days later, when the Spirit has been poured out at Pentecost? Remember what Peter says in Acts 22. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles. And it was God's plan, but you used lawless people to nail him to the cross and kill him. God raised him up. And from verse 36, therefore, Peter says, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Praise God that there were repentant hearts among the Jews that day. Praise God that there were over 3,000 people who turned from their sin and put their trust in Jesus, Messiah, the Saviour King, and were saved. And friends, that can be you. Jesus died for rebels. If you turn away from ignoring and rebelling against God and trust Jesus as your saviour and your king, you will be saved. You'll be forgiven by God, find relationship with God, be adopted as a child of God, and even be promised a place in the new heaven, new heaven and earth. And so trusting in the apparently weak but truly mighty King Jesus saves. 
He saves people from sin and eternal suffering. Brings us to heaven. Eternal life. Nothing matters more. And Jesus, the weak king who really saves, he gives us also as Christians an example to follow. And I mentioned two areas briefly by way of application. First, instead of thinking of leaders as people who need to be aggressive and tough, strong and tough like The Rock, Dwayne Johnson or Arnie, we see that true leadership for Christians is about servant leadership. Christians who lead in the church and the world are to be leaders who serve, seek the good of those around them, under them. We're to lead with humility, a willingness to go out of our way, even to sacrifice, even suffer for the good of others. Husbands and fathers are to be godly and servant leaders who love in that way too. And when looking for leaders in the church or the workplace, we do well to look for people who will put the good of others before themselves. Leaders who show humility and a commitment to do what's right even when it costs them. Are you that kind of leader? Are you that kind of person? How are you going at showing this? Humility and others before myself. And Christians who lead, in your sacrifice and service, remember that you follow the Lord who did it first for you. So keep trusting the Lord as you follow him. Second, do you need to change your view of weakness and suffering? We too often too quickly think that weakness is bad and suffering must be avoided. Whereas the passage today and the example of our King Jesus tells us something different, as does the example of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, in contrast to his enemies, Paul boasts in his weaknesses. And he speaks of being given 40 lashes, being beaten and stoned and in danger. He speaks of enduring toil and hardship and sleeplessness and hunger and pressure and more. And shockingly, he says, if I have to boast, I'll boast about my weaknesses. In 2 Corinthians 12, he speaks of suffering a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan which tormented him. And he prayed repeatedly that God would take it away. And what was the Lord's response? What was the Lord's response? No. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me when I am weak. Then I am strong. How counter-cultural, how counter-intuitive is that? 
in whatever hardship you are facing at the moment, in whatever weakness you might be experiencing, please remember this. It's an opportunity for Christ's strength to shine through. As you rely not on yourself, trust not in yourself, but on the God who raises the dead. And so remember and believe that God's power and grace is and it can be revealed in, perfected in your weakness. For Jesus, for us. Kim Crandall has written this book, Christ in the Chaos, How the Gospel Changes Motherhood. Recommend it. She writes, If you were to read my journal, you'd see my main struggle is against my own weakness. Instead of boasting in my weakness so that the power of God may rest on me, I often find myself despairing because I'm not as strong as I think I need to be. I struggle with feelings of unworthiness as a wife, mother, and a child of God. The proof of my unworthiness being my weakness. But through the power of the gospel, I eventually make my way to the truth and the Lord draws me closer to himself. She says, my weakness precedes me. My weakness tears me down and leaves me as dust. I have no power to gather my own dust and put myself together. That takes an act of God. It's when I am weak that I see his strength. I see how I am nothing but dust without him. I cannot produce goodness, kindness, gentleness, or anything else lovely. But grace envelops me in God's love. He leads me to repent, soak in his love. I hope you too will trust the Lord in your weakness. Our Lord, the Saviour King, he seemed weak and he was rejected. But he's the mighty King who saves. Trust him. Follow him. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us for our doubts, for all those times when we trust in our own strength or look to our own goodness or achievements, when we put ourselves first and not others first, nor glorify you in our lives. Thank you as we're about to remember in the supper that his sacrifice and cleanse us of all our sin. Lord, we pray that we would remember that while the world sees Jesus as weak, By your grace, you've opened our eyes to see his strength, his rule, his saving kingship. May we trust him. Give us grace by your spirit to follow him. Lord, thank you that the suffering will end in glory. Did for Jesus, it will for us. So help him to follow him faithfully, even in our weakness. For the glory of God. Amen.